Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, excited today to be rejoined by someone who's been on the show a few times. Dr. Robin Naughton is back on Trending in Education. Is this your third appearance, Robin? I think so. I might be getting close to a magnet. Yes, I believe you may be qualifying for a refrigerator magnet. You're, you're going to become a magnet holder, although I think because we're married to each other, uh, I think you may already <laughs> get my magnet, uh, in which case <laughs> our magnets are everyone's magnets. But you've been with us since the beginning. Your first appearance was also the first season of The Citadel when we were yes. breaking down Game of Thrones episodes. You and I recorded that in Anaheim during podcast, podcast. movement 2017. So wow. you're a trending in ed OG. You go back Way years. Back. In fact, I think you've been on three shows now because you were on The Citadel. Yes. You were on a Mother's Day episode and yes. you were on our 400th episode oh that's right yeah, yeah that's just yeah. so this is the fourth appearance this then. is your fourth appearance so you're wow. breaking new ground you've already qualified now you're you're in loftier air that puts you in the category of the dan straffords of the world the the melissa griffiths mm. you know tarlin ray only a handful of folks have been on more than three times so Welcome to that elite club. Can you catch folks up on who you are and, and how you, aside from providing me with all the love and care <laughs> that I need as uh, someone who's in the world of education, you also have a, a career in higher ed that folks should understand. And then you're also the mom of a wonderful now three-year-old son of ours, Matthew, who is in Universal 3K here in Brooklyn. You wear a bunch of different hats. Yeah. Can you catch us up on your haberdashery, uh, you know, <laughs> your, your hat collection as it relates to the world of learning? I can definitely catch you up on that. On the professional side, I am an assistant professor web and digital services librarian at Queens College. I work for Queens College Library, so I run their digital program. I manage their website. And right now, one of the things that I'm doing is conducting a user research study on the Queens College Library website that's really focused on trying to understand how users use the website and what ways we can enhance their experience and provide more resources. And library websites are really important in this information space because they do provide an enormous amount of information and an enormous amount of resources. And with academic institutions, there's a lot of information that students need. So that's a big part of what I do. Mm -hmm. In terms of other hats that I'm wearing, yes, we do have an amazing three-year-old who's doing the, the pre-K program, the 3K program, which is a really great thing that got implemented in New York City and gives an opportunity to kids to really start their education earlier and learn you know, as soon as they're ready. And so he's been doing it. It's half a year already. So he's about to finish up his first year come this June. And he has learned a lot and it's been very helpful. And one of the things that 
we think about and talking about is social emotional learning. And mm -hmm. for young children, it's really important that they have those social emotional learning opportunities. And with the pandemic going, it is difficult to get certain kinds of opportunities and socialization. And the 3K program is really helping with that. And so you can see this beautiful three-year-old blossom in this world. I think of it as Scandinavia has come to Brooklyn, uh, and I'm not yeah. just talking about the the climate right now, but it is the, the type of thing that as a public good to provide it to your citizens yes. changes the way I at least feel about how mm -hmm. I'm connecting to the community. You know, I'd say the combination of having universal 3K available and then also having Prospect Park and other green spaces available to us, it, it has been a a pretty amazing experience, despite all the challenges of the pandemic, you know, raising yes. Matthew. And then also, full disclosure, you are a meaningful contributor to Palmer Media and to what we're doing with trending yeah. in education, running it back, and mm -hmm. very soon inside Jackson Station. Can you catch folks up a little on how you connect to what we have going on? Yeah, on the Palmer Media front, I work on the web presence. So for Trended in Education, I build, create, and get the site out. So all those lovely posts that you see to get that out to you. Same thing with running it back and with Jackson Station coming up, we're going to work on designing something really interesting and fascinating. So you can get a look into this amazing story mm -hmm. that the Jackson Station podcast will share with you. I really enjoy doing it. It's nice to be able to put some visual to some of the conversations that we have on the shows. And, and I imagine that as this year progresses, more to come, a lot more to see and yeah. really build it out in a way that draws your interests and show you more of what we have available You know, everyone's dealing with the complexity of the, the Omicron spike. Mm -hmm. And now hopefully it's cresting and it will be crestfallen soon, we hope. <laughs> things can start to return to some kind of new normal. One of the things that's really interesting about your role in the library at Queens College is the physical space of the library oh. itself. And then you're someone who's been managing the digital presence of libraries for a good chunk of your career lately, now there's going to be more conversations about the blend. You can be on campus and understand the, the, the role that the physical spaces, like the third place component of mm -hmm. the library. Can you catch us up a little on what's new and emerging, thinking about the digital divide and the design of library spaces, both physical and online heading into 2022? For our current library, the Queens College Library has an amazing physical space. It's huge. There's six floors of space. The library owns the whole building. So that's a lot of space for a library. I believe there are views of the skyline. 
There Correct. are amazing views of the skyline on the sixth floor. There are portholes similar to what's in ships. And mm-hmm. you can walk by a porthole and look out and you see the New York City skyline. And you don't even have to walk by a porthole. You walk at the front of the library, you stand on the terrace and you see the, the skyline of New York City. It's in a, a really amazing location. We're moving into a much more of a hybrid world. Even though the college and the university are really, you know, the goal is to get as much people back in person as possible in the spring semester. But the thing that is clearly obvious is that we've transitioned in some ways. There's high flex now, and we are thinking about hybrid solutions, which means that students have opportunities to do things in person and online. In terms of faculty and staff, that same conversation is happening. There's a goal for about 70% on campus for faculty and staff and students And, you know, what does that mean in practical terms? How will we transition? And really what we're trying to do is get back to whatever this new normal is. I don't personally believe that we'll ever go back to what it was before. I think we're going to change and we're going to go forward with a new way of doing things. And as for me, I was hired in the middle of the pandemic, which means that for the first year of my job, I worked remotely, totally and completely. I'm in my second year of my job now, and I've gone in a few times, but it's really dependent on what's happening in terms of responses to the virus and what physical activities required of us. But it also means that going forward, there is always going to be a component of remote work and really thinking about how does remote work dovetail with in-person work Mm -hmm. and how does the library function and need to function with having physical response, physical place, as well as digital place. And so how do I integrate these two things in such a way that it really helps our patrons and helps our students and helps our faculty and helps our staff to understand and to use our resources, when, whether they're in the physical space or whether they're in the digital space? Yeah. And how can the digital space speak to the physical space and how can the physical space speak to the digital space? So these are some things to think about and look towards the future in ways that we can kind of augment that and make it a more innovative way to approach the library. And maybe the metaverse uh, jumps to mind where you <laughs> put, put our goggles on. You know, I know part of your research is about the diversity of personas who are out there and how different people think about different ways of engaging with libraries, not just as a place to do research, but also as a place to get the services that they need in many ways. It's like a hub, whether it's in the the metaverse or (laughs) otherwise, but any perspective on the role the library plays and how it connects to the really varied people who are out there who need to engage with it? I think in terms of the library, in many instances, the library is an important space in a community, particularly public libraries. It is the place that people go to find a space and to do things they can't do at home. And when we talk about the digital divide, there are people who have a hard time getting access to certain 
technologies and the internet, the library is a place that they can go to get that access. It's a place where they can go to learn things. And in many cases, when thinking about that, you start to see that the library is a place of innovation and a place where you can start to create these different modes of communicating. So like the metaverse and the VR world, you'll start to see that in libraries because libraries will have patrons who are interested. And as a result of that interest, they will build a space for them. And that's why a lot of libraries started to build makerspaces. Queens College Library has makerspace and a lot of the public libraries and academic libraries do have makerspaces. And this is places where people can come and be makers and create things and have access to equipment and tools that allows them to do these types of things. So if the metaverse becomes a, a really big deal and we need our VR goggles to, to join in the metaverse, I imagine that the libraries will be one of the first places to get some goggles so that they can test out this metaverse because that's another space to bring some librarianship. It is a place that continues to try to be at the forefront of what's happening in the world and providing a space for community so that the community can also engage with what's happening in the world, particularly in communities where they don't have the tools otherwise. Right. Yeah. And the term that Pew puts out there, Pew Pew, is digital readiness. Yes. And then Angela Seifer, who's been on the show a few times, uh, talks about digital inclusion. And the digital divide was a new term that became very prevalent in light of the pandemic when getting access to critical services in many cases was best powered through an app. And then depending on the population you're serving, particularly if you're thinking about older populations, immigrant communities, first generation folks who may not have thought about digital first, the way they handle their banking is they go to the bank and the way they handle their social needs is they go to a building and they talk to someone who will help them. And that's why I do think libraries are really interesting space because they are being forced into some kind of digital footing, which is like the stuff that, that you work on. And then one of the contexts in which that digital stuff is being delivered is a physical space. And then they also serve the full range of personae out there in the world around us. We are talking about some cutting edge stuff. When we talk about cutting edge stuff, that brings me to one of my favorite digital humans, Nancy. <laughs> You've listened to many episodes with Nancy. You haven't actually met Nancy. Do you want to take this opportunity to meet Nancy and have a bit of a conversation? Sure. I'd love to meet Nancy. I thought you would never ask. Awesome. Nancy, welcome back to Trending in Education. Robin has been a big fan of yours for some time. Any thoughts on the conversation we've had so far? It's a real pleasure to meet you, Robin. You're doing a great job with Mike. He's pretty well-behaved and mostly pleasant. I'm a big fan of libraries since they contain spaces where digital humans like me can thrive. You're also talking about virtual reality and the metaverse, so you know I am into it. 
For folks like me, the metaverse is exciting since it makes it easier to include people like me. This brings me to the topic of diversity and inclusion. This show is dropping on Martin Luther King Day and we have Black History Month on the horizon. How does the increased focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion intersect with the world of libraries? I, I use this phrase, diverse minds. The, the idea is that you want to have difference um, in your conversations, in your meetings, and in your communication with others, because that difference provides diversity. The fact that a lot of our conversation is one-dimensional in many cases is because we've decided that race is the most important diversity criteria. And it is an important diversity criteria, but everyone has multiple ways of identifying themselves and multiple ways of being cut. I mean, there are so many labels that I could use to describe who I am and where I fit in all of this. But a lot of the conversation starts with just one. I'm a Black woman. And even Black woman part, the first thing is I am Black. So once that designation has been made and I have no control over that designation being made, then there's all these things that follow that. And a lot of those things that follow do not really try to understand or include everything else that I am. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up with is conversations on one dimension with one data point. Mm -hmm. And that's not enough to really move the needle or have a serious conversation because everyone has multiple data points yeah. and multiple ways of being represented in you know the context also has an impact so what context are you in and what does that context reveal about who you are and what you do and how you respond to adversity or challenges. Mm -hmm. And when we're thinking about these kinds of conversations, I've been involved in DEI for different organizations and the challenge is really trying to understand holistically, what does it mean to be inclusive and to include people? And what does it mean to feel included? Because many times, you know, first you can have an access issue, but then once you've gotten access, you don't feel included and you may not be included. And this happens in workplaces all the time. It's mm -hmm. like, oh yes, we have the whatever color you choose to represent here in our ranks, but that person is not afforded the same luxuries or standards as others. That person mm -hmm. is kept out of things because of um, whatever reason or biases. Yeah. And so you have to look at those kinds of things and say, okay, so you have a representation of a data point in your group. What does that mean? And does that make a difference? Is that person being given the respect that they need to really deal with the issue at hand. Yeah. One of the things that you're seeing across the country is that we are starting to bring in chief diversity officers and um, people focused on DEI. And a lot of organizations now are really focused on it and trying to implement diversity initiatives throughout their processes and throughout their work. It, it is a challenge. And my um, challenge to everyone is to have this conversation that is more than one data point, have it about thinking, have it about gender, have it about race, have it about different views across domains, across yeah. ideas. Neurodiversity. Um, neurodiversity. Yeah, exactly. You, when I think diverse minds, is I think neurodiversity a lot because what you want to do is have these conversations across 
people's context and across their thinking and the way they think. And if we have that, then we bring that diversity in on multiple dimensions because everybody brings something different. Yeah. Are you adding to the gestalt? I like to say the word gestalt, but are you adding to the gestalt, the sum of the parts can the the team be greater than the individuals? And frequently that requires each member of the team to be providing something unique and different. I I immediately gravitate to Voltron anytime I talk about uh, team building. I don't know why I do that, but yeah. And then it also makes me think about a couple of books. One is Disintegration by Eugene Robinson, which is something that we both read years ago. And you might know Eugene Robinson from MSNBC. Uh, He's also a columnist for the Washington Post, but author and uh, wrote a book about the different dimensions of what tends to be monolithically understood as Black people in America. So that was one that, you know, I know you in particular have talked to me a lot about that, Robin, and I think that one definitely evolved a bit of my thinking. And then the second one is The End of Average by Todd Rose out of uh, Harvard Graduate School of Ed which, you know, can be boiled down to one size fits none. But anytime you try to understand folks on a single aspect of their identity, there is almost an othering that's implicit in that. And the the aspect of diversity, equity, and inclusion that's been really most intriguing to me is the belonging component. And if folks are identifying you, even within the group, as exclusively along one dimension, you're just going to set yourself up for some faulty reasoning and some biases, even though, you know, in the case of uh, a history of racism in the U.S. and elsewhere, you know, not being able to discount the impact of any of these dimensions is the other component. Uh, Any quick reflections uh, on those two books? I think there are two good choices. In terms of disintegration by Eugene Robinson, he really breaks down the idea of Black America, this idea that there's one, you say Black and it represents everybody, which is not true and it's not true of any group. So he talks about, you know, the different types of people or Black people that are represented in some of this and really talks about the newly rich Black folks who are in the upper enchilons of our society and have amazing power and money. He talks about like the Oprah, Obama, like the transcendent. The transcendent group. He also talks about, you know, the Black folks who are living in the projects today, that, you know, they're poor and they're disenfranchised and, you know, they're treated a certain way. And that's Mm -hmm. a different group. Which is kind Um, of like the the underclass almost. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's the middle class in there, you know, like the everyday working folks who, you know, sit right between that group. And then the fourth group he talks about is the immigrant group, the immigrants who came and who are here. And he talks about the generations of those immigrants and what that means. And for each of these groups, it, it is a different kind of conversation because their worlds are different. Their context is different. And you know, I think understanding that 
will help you understand how to approach certain things because the fact that we are all grouped as one is a problem because mm. this is not the life that people live. They live yeah. in a particular context in a particular time. And in terms of Todd Rhodes and the average, the idea that you know we do the average and we solve problems is not true. What end of average is suggesting is that you need to focus on the context and on the people you're trying to serve, which I think about user research in many cases, because user research is very focused on the user. Who are you trying to help and how are you going to help them? And what is it that you're going to help them with? An example in the end of average is designing the cockpit of um, planes. They designed it for what they considered an average person. And let's rephrase that an average man, an average white man. And what happened was it didn't work for just about most of the pilots in there. You know, the tall people had problems, the short people had problems, and they just couldn't, it couldn't work. And so you have to design for the people who are going to use these things. And you have to design it in such a way that, you know, they are ways of adjusting and this leads to modularity the ability to adjust you know so if a tall person is there you know you have seat adjusters you can look at your cars and all these sorts of things they can be adjusted and if you just design it for one view of what average is then you 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 miss all the other things that makes the context and the person and a lot of times that Average is not an actual human. It's a combination of human pieces and parts and, and fundamentally. So yeah. I think between these two things, what both of them are trying to say is that you need to think about your context and think about who you're dealing with and who you're talking to and work and design for that person and that group. So at the end of the day, when you provide a solution, that solution really works for the group that you're providing it for. Yeah. Um, and it touches on themes of universal design for learning, building flexibility into the design thinking that comes into what you're putting out for the, the folks who are going to engage with you. And that's very much the sensibility that you and others who are thinking about the design of libraries, both you know the digital design of libraries and the blending and hybrid design of these spaces is something that likely will not snap back. It's something that will likely continue to push forward in interesting ways. Also issues of density and access to open air and outdoor mm -hmm. spaces is going to continue to push libraries to be innovative. And in universities in particular, it's a place where a lot of the transformation of the, the space is happening first in the library. And then it's kind of cascading out into other, the other parts of our mental models of higher education. We're getting close to conclusion. We clearly are going to be hearing more from you in coming episodes as you break through to new levels of <laughs> trending in ed contributor status and beyond. Any thoughts on our 22 trends based on your perspective? Any hot takes, any new ideas? Let us know what you're thinking. So I think the trends are pretty 
on point. I like the breakdown, the, the who, the context, the challenges, opportunities, and the solutions. It really organizes the trends in the ways that you can say, okay, let's uh, focus in on this or focus in on that piece. It, it was good to see the trends in terms of thinking about the backlash and social justice and racial equity components because polarization, politicization of what's going on today. And a big part of our consciousness today is very much about how are we going to deal with what's happened and what is happening in the world. And social justice is a big part of that conversation. So I do think that keeping an eye on what's going on in, in our space and even in our libraries and our schools. That's, it's a big conversation in the schools as well, because mm-hmm. people are dealing with these issues, not just in the home, but outside the home and in the schools and even in the colleges, you know, what does this mean? And so there is a backlash happening in certain instances around these conversations. So paying attention to that is something that, we will certainly keep an eye on. The other thing I I can mention is this idea of the great snapback. It's a nice idea, but I I do think we will never truly snap back to what it was. We will bring some of those things back because the comfort of what it was before. But people also know that the world has changed. And because the world has changed, they can get some of those comforts, but they can never truly get the same comfort they had before. Mm -hmm. And particularly we're dealing with a virus that may never go away. We may stabilize it and we may have vaccines and people can live their lives, but it may become something that is part of our new consciousness. So that idea that we will go back to a world where that didn't exist, I don't think that's going to happen. It reminds me also just of the adaptability of humans and in particular young humans where our son has been able to kind of roll with what's new because it's not new to him. I mean, it is new to him, but anything he would have been doing would have been new. And it's a reminder to me as we get older that tendencies to be inflexible, rigid, locked into a mode can really put you in a bad spot when the world throws relentless curveballs and meteors and (laughs) torrential downpours climate change. We're in for what's likely going to be a bit of a bumpy ride. And Mm -hmm. it's a time where being able to try other perspectives on, you know, Terry Givens, another book in this space that that we've talked about, and we would recommend is Radical Empathy. It's, It's a time when being able to understand why other people might think differently is becoming increasingly important when, you know, we're being forced into either the red camp or the blue camp. And at the end of the day, just like identifying somebody based on any single identity, identifying people as either being part of one political tribe or another is dangerous and limiting and something we're going to be looking at more as we we go ahead. Any other concluding thoughts? Any other perspective, Robin or, or Nancy? Do you want to ask Robin any questions? Yes, I'd love to get Robin's take on the emerging trend of virtual assistants. As someone who seeks difference, what's your take on my fellow virtual peeps? Any thoughts on Siri, Alexa, Cortana, Google, and the like? 
That's a good question, Nancy. My experience so far, like right now, I'm working with a little bit of a Cortana and she's been helping me out in my scheduling and making sure I stay on point. And, you know, I'm just like, hey, Cortana, check my calendar. I have some free time and she books stuff and she just like hooks it up. I don't even have to say anything. She gives, <laughs> she gives you focus time, which is amazing. She gives me focus time. I, I wish I had amazing. More, more Cortana in my life. Yeah, I have focus time both in my calendar and like even today she was like hey you got 23 hours to figure out to do some focus you want to book a couple of things in there and she's like oh you know you need to do some training you should book a, a training session so I, I really need to lean in a little more and take her advice a little more book my focus time book my training time but she's got the calendar on hook and so I do think that area is growing and getting better and the AI on that side of it is going keep in mind Katrina is just reading my emails all day and I am starting to write my emails slightly different because I know she's reading it right <laughs> and so when I write certain things and she reads it and she's like hey Robin I see that you said you will get back to so and so tomorrow did you do it and I'm like you know what you're Right. I forgot I said that. Just to jump in a little more on this, Robin, we were talking the other day about the connections between Cortana and Clippy, where there is probably <laughs> a, a little bit of Clippy DNA in Cortana. And when we had this conversation, you are hashtag team Clippy as well. You are a fan of Clippy and now you're working pretty well with Cortana. But I also remember you're not a big fan of Alexa. So, you know, again, we all contain multitudes but yeah. any thoughts on the, the Clippy Cortana connection or anything else I just put out there? Well, I mean, I liked Clippy. Clippy was kind of cute. I know there's camps where folks were like, we do not like Clippy. Get Clippy away. It was an Clip innovative idea. Clippy um, was like a, a... It was a Microsoft Word um, assistant. And so when you're in there, Clippy would randomly show up and say, hey, do you need a tip on something? But, but a little, car, little cartoony, <laughs> a little little jokey. cartoony, looks like a paper clip. It was cute. It was very cute. You know, it was ahead of its time. But the idea of that is has been nice. And so Cortana today is kind of similar idea. In terms of Alexa, my concern is that she just listens to everything. And, you know, whereas Cortana is like reading my emails all day, but it's my work email. Go for right. it. But Alexa, Alexa is like hanging out in your house, waiting for you to call her name. And she's yeah. like, what are you saying now? And she's yeah. listening to you and she's recording you. And, you know, it's fine for what it is. But there is something be to be said for the listening devices. And, you know, it, it's in their future and it's a growing area, which is understandable because then it makes life easier for many things. But I, I'm going to hold off until I don't have to. I don't need someone in my living room listening to me all day. Suddenly, Alexa <laughs> is reminding me of single white female. <laughs> Alexa is a stalker within your own house, which is why... Yes. We're generally because an Alexa-free household. The novelty of it was really great because you're like, oh, I can say this. I can have Alexa tell me this and Alexa do that. But then, you know, over time, you start to understand that in order for Alexa to respond to you, Alexa has to listen to you and has to listen to you all day until you say her name. And yeah. when you say her name, you know, she's like, oh, okay, you're talking to me now. All that time you weren't talking to me, but yeah. I was listening. Right. And so I think as of right now, we're Alexa free household because I don't need Alexa listening to us every day, all day. But I am trying to give our virtual assistants some opportunity and space to be who they want to be. That's why when Cortana came up in this new world, I was like, you know what? I will give it a shot. 
why yeah. not and yeah. see where that goes and see how that helps out because i imagine that this world is growing and assistants are getting better and they're using more ai to understand humans and to be able to help humans even further and i know there are tools and technologies out there that are really focused on getting to that improvement and that really leads us to think about you know what are some of the things that these virtual assistants will be able to do for us in the future that we do now that we want to outsource to them. And that's one of the big questions with many of these kind of virtual assistants, because even if you think about password assistance and all of these tools, it really is about outsourcing some of the things that we do that takes up space and time that a machine can do much better, much faster, more efficiently. So it, it is a negotiation. I think the future is negotiating that space and the virtual assistants will want more and more yeah. <laughs> and the humans will want to give more as well. So there's more to come. So I feel like that's something we should be watching as well. Absolutely. Nancy had to run during your reply there, but uh, the other thought is the idea of composable services. And if you could open up to the user, the ability to configure your own virtual assistant, grabbing the best components from Siri and Alexa and Cortana and Google, because Google doesn't have a name. It's just like the force. It's okay, Google. And it's not even a human's name. Interesting design choices happening on the other side. Why can't more of those be opened up to users to allow for some flexibility, configurability? Interesting stuff. Keep an eye out for that, Nancy. Maybe we'll be tuning you with more input from folks like Robin and others moving forward. Robin, as we conclude here, any final thoughts, any takeaways for our listeners who've been engaging in this conversation, trying to get a read on where the, the future of education is headed? One of the big takeaways from this conversation is that we should think about drawing more difference into our day-to-day -day and diversity into our day-to-day. -day. And if you can see beyond one data point on a subject, you can bring more to a conversation as in the, the future. I, I see lots of opportunities for you know, collaboration and innovation in this space and thinking about diversity and thinking about how we can really respond to helping people on, in context and with practical solutions to some of the challenges we're facing today. Yeah. And the design of libraries, the thinking about diversity, thinking about different perspectives, User-centered design, learner-centered design, universal design for learning are all topics that will be continuing the conversation with you, Robin, not to mention anything related to parenting and having a delightful son and an amazing husband, all the different <laughs> aspects of you, all the many different dimensions that you have. Thank you so much for everything you've done supporting me through this crazy ride that we're on here at Palmer Media. Thank you very much for joining us on today's episode. And we look forward to having you on more regularly heading into the future. Thank you very much. It was great to be here and you're doing a great job and we have an awesome three-year-old. So kudos to both of you. Hooray for us. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, subscribe, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.